We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We've been going through these parables, stories Jesus told to help explain some deeper pictures. And we're now in that last week before the cross. We've been there for the last couple of parables. And that adds to what's going on. And you kind of picture all the things that happen. Uh, now, a couple of days into his back and forth with the religious leaders at the temple as he would go and, and teach and heal and prepare for the cross, they would come and confront him and they would uh, accuse, they would try to trap, they tried all kinds of things to discredit him. Every single one of those interactions only discredited them and gave more evidence of his being from God and being the Son of God. Uh, but all of that's going on, and as you can imagine, that means that the tensions are really tight. If you were there as one of the disciples, I, I don't know what it would feel like as you went back into town every day and started to uh, watch Jesus as he taught and he as he was confronted and everything. I, I don't know. I don't know if you would be excited because you're sitting there saying, oh, sock it to him again, Jesus, or if you're going, oh, I'll up with this again today, or if you, you ever heard one of their questions and because you don't know what Jesus was going to say, if you would ever stand here and think, oh, how's he going to get out of this one? And then stand in amazement, as he just does, every single time. Uh, I don't know. It would, it would be an interesting time to have been a disciple and uh, one of the apostles in training watching all of this happen. could have also been a scary time. Because from their point of view, they're thinking that this kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about may come not just through the blood of Christ, but through their own as well. They are still thinking, they were wrong about some of this stuff, but they were still misunderstanding and thinking that this kingdom was going to be an, an earthly kingdom. It was going to be a na another nation like all nations come into being, which usually happens through war and battle. Some of them were prepared to do that, but that doesn't mean that they were foolhardy. It doesn't mean that they were nervous. That doesn't mean they were scared. There were also those who would have been nervous because they're dealing with some of the most powerful people in their culture and in their religion and their city. And that's, that's intimidating. If you are a Jew and all of these guys would have been, I'm buzzing up here, aren't I? I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, I fixed it. Something's a little sick. Uh, if you were one of these guys, you were kind of just a, uh, they were, they were most of them. Some of them were white collar, some were blue collar, but all of them were, were lower level workers in the eyes of the people that are arguing with Jesus. And they know that. These are people that you got out of the way of if you were at the temple. When they came walking through, and they came with their entourage, you just kind of stood back and let them go by. And they walked with a lot of pride, they walked with a lot of arrogance, and, and it was obvious. And they liked it that way. And they liked it that way. Um, the disciples, however, may have been intimidated by that. Some of them would have been angered by it, frustrated by it. Because they see, and if they didn't see it before, and they probably did, they definitely see one following Jesus. How hypocritical, how worldly, how uh, only aiming at their own self-interest these guys really were. They saw that. They were going to see it again on the day that Jesus tells this parable. So that's all. I did it backwards today, didn't I? That's all the context. Now we'll read the parable. Look at verse 33. And uh, I'm going to read this off off the screen so I know when to click. Listen to another parable. Because he's just, at this point, he's just one after another. Listen to another parable. 
There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect fruit. Okay, everything so far, pretty normal. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last call, he said to his son, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and stole him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This kind of reminds me a little bit of when David is confronted by Nathan. Nathan comes to David and he tells a parable. A parable about a man who was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and his neighbor had only one. And he says, you know, this guy with a hundred sheep has some friends coming. He, he wants to feed them. So what does he do? Does he say one of his hundred? No. He goes and takes the sheep of this man who only has one. And he kills that and he stirs that. And the reason it reminds me of that parable is David's response. David's response is, you know, what would you do with that guy? And David says, oh man, that guy is evil. That is so wrong. Well, I drag him out and punish him bad. Nathan, as Richard Rogers used to say, Nathan takes his long, bony finger. I guess prophets would have had long, bony fingers. I don't know how he did that. He takes his long, bony finger and puts it in David's chest and says, you are that man. Jesus doesn't say those words, but watch what he does say. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they reply. That's their response, just like David, the parable word. And he will rent the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And he knows they had. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Well, two different passages. We'll get to that here to say. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. See, he's pointed. This is the finger in the chest. It will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce his fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Let's look at this bit by bit because this parable uh, is not like all parables. Kind of like the last one. The last one was the same way. And it's because it's all in the exact same context, the same conversation. Jesus is not being veiled with these. He's not uh, trying to keep them from understanding. These are very pointed parables, much more like that one that Nathan told to David to call him through minutes. And it has the same purpose. Ultimately, all these stories Jesus tells us, every time he confronts the Pharisees and teaches the law and the chief priests, it's because he wants them to repent. They never seem to get that, but that was the point. It was not just to say, so there. It was always to try and get them to do right, to change their hearts and to change their minds. Um, often fell on deaf ears. Hey, it didn't work. Fell on apart hearts. It fell on stubborn pride in this case. But it doesn't stop him from trying 
which is really important for us to remember, both in how the Lord deals with us and in how we should deal with other people. Just because they were stubborn doesn't mean he didn't want them to be saved. Just because they were arrogant, quark-hearted doesn't mean he didn't want them to humble themselves. That was his day. It still is to this day. Peter says that's why he puts up with things. It's why he, he, he is waiting so long till the second coming, 2,000 years so far. He had no idea for that. Because he's patient. Because he wants people to repent. He wants them to come back to him. So all of that is what's going on here. You know, when I touched that, it actually stopped the timer, so I got bonus time with her. Yeah. So that's how that works now. Let's look at the symbolism here. <laughs> that wouldn't work that way. I was looking at symbolism. It's very, very easy. Some of these things were symbols that they had used all the time. Okay, for literally hundreds of years, most of the symbolism in this particular parable was familiar to the people of Israel. So it's, it's again, it's not veiled. Especially this one, the idea of God's people, of Israel being the vineyard of God. He used that all the time as a way of, of talking about them. You are my vineyard. He would talk about it in ways of blessing and, and, and a prosperous vineyard and, and it's just flowing with wine. Or he would talk about it in terms of if they got stubborn and arrogant as they're being in this moment with him at the temple, that it would be dried up and drought-ridden and empty. But he used the vineyard as an image for them all the time. So that way they would have understood, which means from the beginning they knew what he was talking about and they knew who he was talking about. Then you get uh, to the uh, service who are the prophets. You have these people who work in the vineyard, and those are the people that got calls to various things, depending on the particular parable. In this one, he's talking about the prophets, whom they had stoned, whom they had beaten, and whom they had murdered in real time, in real life, for hundreds of years. And Jesus has already confronted them about this before, not in a parable, just saying outright, you killed the prophets before, you and your forefathers. And he always laid responsibility right at their feet. Even though they could have said, well now, how is that us? We weren't here 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 600 years ago. We weren't around centuries ago when Elijah was being persecuted. We didn't do that. And you know what's interesting? They don't give that response. When Jesus rebukes them for that, they never make the excuse that, no, we didn't. Because they know they're doing the same things as their fathers. They know they had the same attitude as their fathers. They're proud of it. They still believe some of their forefathers were right. And that they're doing the right thing in imitating them. And that their stubbornness is a righteous stubbornness. They feel justified. Jesus confronts them on it over and over again. So this wasn't even a new accusation. But that's what they had done to the prophets. The prophets had been faithful. They would laid down their lives in order to, to give the message God called them to give, and it was not easy. You go back and you read the lives of people like I, uh, Elijah, almost called it Ijea. That's like, that sounds like a new name, something they named their kid after this. Uh, I got the kid named Ijea. We did two prophets at once, two for one. Uh, but I, Elijah, we'll get it in a minute. You look at what he went through, just, just him. You look at how he felt about what he went through. There were times when he just wanted to give up. Some of those were right after his peak times, like at 1 Kings 18 and 19, with 
the confrontation of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then after all that, just like you've experienced in your life, after a big mountain high, sometimes Satan is just right over that corner. I call those Mondays. And, and he's just right there waiting for it. And he just sucks it to you. And you just feel all of the, the, the hype that you got from worship of God, serve God, whatever it was that you were doing, where you felt good about what God was doing in your life. He just hits you with every negative thought, or criticism from self or from outside that he can. This happened to Elijah and he was depressed. He was definitely what we would call depressed. And he went through those ups and downs all through his service of the Lord. You look at people like Ezekiel or Hosea that got all to do some pretty crazy things to convey his word and his message to the people of God and who were completely and utterly ignored most of the time, even though they went to such great lengths and were persecuted and were hard. John the Baptist, who quite literally loses his head because he dared to confront sin when he saw it. He says, this is what you do to my people. This is what you don't. And they know that. So the next symbol is the tenants. And it's really obvious who they were. They were the people who had killed all the prophets. And they would have thought this immediately. But then Jesus goes on when he, he starts explaining what's going to happen. Because they're like these people. Tells the story in his pronouns, doesn't it? Told you before, when you're doing biblical interpretation, look look at the pronouns. It tells you an awful lot. It tells the story. Jesus doesn't say they. Jesus says you. And the second he uses you the first time, they know. They know. He's saying this is us. Do they repent? Do they say we would never kill God's prophets? Except that they're planning on it this week. We would never resist a messenger from God, except they've done it now for three years, plus whatever time John the Baptist talked to him before that. We would never. There's none of that. Because I think deep down they know. Somebody said the other day, you know, you really don't, you don't have to point out to most of us what our flaws are, what our struggles are, what our problems are. Most of us know. Don't we? We know what our issues are. We know where we're weak. We, nobody beats us up more than we beat ourselves up for most people. But these guys, the things that Jesus is pointing out, this is the problem. They thought it was their strength. But we also know sometimes we make that mistake too. Don't we? We've made the mistakes, the mistakes sometimes of letting what we consider our strengths become our greatest weakness. Their greatest strength was that they really had a zeal for being true to the law. Like we all have a great zeal for being true and faithful to the word of God. That is a strength. When their zeal outran and outweighed their actual living of what the law was intended to teach. It became their greatest weakness. We were in our Thursday study, we just got finished the study of Leviticus. I think it's fair to say that most people that have been at that study were surprised by some of the things that we, we saw in Leviticus. Uh, you know, you're not, I've joked about it several times, you're not surprised 
by boils and pus in Leviticus. You're not surprised by blood and sacrifices in Leviticus. What you will be surprised by in Leviticus, if you really go in and read it, is the constant drumbeat of mercy, of compassion, of generosity toward the poor, of justice for those who are mistreated, and that that is where you often hear, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. They missed that part. They were great at the sacrifices. They were great at counting out, Jesus says, the men, the dill, and the cumin, keeping all the rules. But the heart of the law was for God and me. The heart of the law was for compassion. So much so that, I've mentioned this before, you know this well, that when you farmed your land, this is just such an easy illustration, when you farmed your land and when you harvested it, you left all the outer edges for the poor to come and gather food. You didn't say, get off my lawn. You welcome to come. So different from human nature, so very different from the American way. But that's what it was, and that's that's what God really taught them in the law on Moses. They just totally, completely missed that. Through their strength. They missed their strength because it had become their greatest weakness. Jesus looks them in the eyes on this day and says, I don't think you know how that looks from heaven. Because I gave you responsibilities. They were the tenants in the vineyard. They were to reap a harvest that would benefit them, yes, but also bring glory to the master, in this case, God. There she was to bear fruit and to bring glory to God and praise to God and love and compassion to their neighbors. So you didn't do that. Instead, whenever you would get off track and I would send people both to harvest the fruit in the beginning and then to push you back to your original mission. He says, instead, what you did was you stoned them and he got them. Now, we don't usually see that. Instead, what we see in our time is you fire them and you dismiss them. You ignore them. You ghost them. Ghosting is so unchristian. But we do all those things. Blast them on the internet. Gossip around town. And all those things happen. But is it any different? Now, I ask the people who have been through that. It feels the same. A prophet now is a prophet. Whoever wrote the, the poem... Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Had really good intentions, but was a terrible liar. You know, a terrible liar. Because it is a lie. And we should grow a tough skin. And parents teach you kids that on, because they want you to grow a thick skin. And you need that. So, you know, there's a message in there that's, that you, you need to get. But the truth is, the reason you need the thick skin is because words hurt. What have they been saying about Jesus? Rather than saying, surely he is, surely this man is the Son of God, as some confessed. These men said, he speaks and does miracles by the power of the devil. They blasphemed against him. They accused him. They lied about him. Just a few chapters away 
they will start making up false evidence about him that even they won't end up using because they know, they admit it's in the scriptures, they admit that it's such such a bad fake evidence, there's no way they're going to pull this off in a Roman court where they actually expect you to have real evidence. But they're still being tried. It says, guys, this is you. <coughs> and God has sent people to you to call you back over and over again. And since you don't listen, he says to them, what's the master going to do? It's going to take it away. He quotes two passages before he says that part. One is from Psalm 118, and one is from the book of Daniel. Both of them speak of the coming kingdom and the Messiah. One talks about the capstone. He says, you know, you look at this stone while you were building the building. It goes in, it's, like it's a whole other metaphor from the parable. And you have this stone, and it was meant to be the capstone. That capstone is a prominent stone. It's specially chosen. It's both significant in its, in its performance and the structure of the building, and it's significant in, in its symbolism within the building. So it's not just any old rock chosen on purpose for a purpose. Since you took that and you decided you didn't like that rock, you looked at the Messiah and you decided he wasn't the Messiah you wanted. He said things differently from what you wanted to hear. He established a kingdom differently from what you expected and you just outright rejected him. He says, but let me tell you something. As was foretold way back in the Psalms, God is still going to pick up that stone that you threw over to the side. And he's going to not only judge that this is the stone he actually wanted, but in putting it at the very top, what does he say to those men who had rejected the Messiah? What would you be saying if you did that? You go and grab, oh, you don't want to use the one that I chose? You ever seen this at a potluck? Jello, orange, carrots. You've tried to hide, Jake's tried to hide the orange jello over here. Well, I'm going to go put it right in the middle of the table. Right there. You ever seen that? It's kind of passive aggressive, but people do it. Put it right over there. Well, what, what's God going to do? It's not passive aggressiveness. What's he going to do? He's going to make things right. He's going to say, the one you tried to throw away, and just dismiss, I will put at the center the place of glory and the place of honor. It's Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? He came in the form of a servant, humbled himself, even to the point of being a slave, being nailed to the cross, and what will happen at the very end? That stone the builders rejected will be lifted up. You'll be given the name that is above every name, but that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is more to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, that's going to happen. But you won't be a part of it. You're going to miss out all the glory on all the reward because you're rejecting it. You think you could have heard of end drama? among the disciples as they watch him say this to the people who are so holier than thou to Jesus himself. Always in that place to be, right? Holier than thou when you're talking to Jesus. This is what they did. Imagine. But this is what he did. 
And he lays it there before them. And then he says one more thing that is really going to get out of their skin. He says, all this is going to be taken away. Let's look at this passage. My thought can still click. I just forgot about it. Let's look at this. It says, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce his fruit. What fruit? Well, just like back in the law of Moses is still true. What fruit? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Live a life that is full of compassion. Live a life that reflects the justice of God. Live a life that, that reflects the holiness and the righteousness of God. Live a life that actually brings people in contact with Jesus because they've been in contact with you. Where they walk away, they say the same thing that they said about the disciples when they arrest. Some of the same people here in this parable will arrest Peter and John later on. What will they say? We can tell these men have been with Jesus. Now they don't mean that as a compliment. But it is. It is. That's fruit bearer. When a person can be around you and know they've been in the presence of the kingdom of God, you bear fruit. When a person can be around you and walk away strengthening their faith, you are bearing fruit. And he says, guys, to these guys, guys, nobody feels that when they leave you. And so I will take the mission away from you and give it to those who will carry it on. So that's the parable. What's the application? It, I think it's as obvious as the parable. What about us? Here's the cool thing about reading parables from the vantage point of where we are in this moment. We know who they represent. We know who Jesus is rebuking. We know then, and we, we know who he's rebuking now. But here's the thing. We get to choose this is the honor of all this. We get to choose who in that parable we will be from this moment forward. There's who we are, wherever you may be in that. And there's who you can be. So you get to choose. Will you be the faithful servants who kept going and calling people to repentance? Will you be those people that he hands the mission off to? He says, I'm going to get rid of you and get some other people in this vineyard. Maybe you'll be the new hires. You'll be the new person. And God says, you know what? I don't know what they were up to. But I see open potential in you and your work in the kingdom of God. And so he calls you to come and work and to serve. That's the cool part of it. You get to choose. Hey, Revelation 19 uh, you have Jesus leading his army to victory. And Jesus has actually already won it, so the army doesn't actually even do anything. They just follow. Richard Rogers used to talk about that one too. And the Richard Heavy this morning. Uh, Richard used to say, whenever you look at these two armies, the army of God versus the army of Satan, it really is a simple binary choice. You can be with God, you can be with Satan. Choose carefully. Don't be stupid. That's what he always said. And it's true. But it's the same way with this parable. We get to choose. Why on earth would anybody choose to be those guys? We sit here and go, well, is he saying I'm that guy? Well, I hope not. If you are, though, you get to repent. We get to change it. That's us. If we've allowed some of our strengths to become our weaknesses, we get to change that. And God will help us do that. 
by his word, by his spirit, through the encouragement and accountability of brothers and sisters in Christ, he helps us to grow and helps us to change. It's a message of hope when you hear it with a heart that's moldable, malleable in the Lord's hands. So what is your heart today? I would like to think there's nobody in the room that has that stubborn, prideful, arrogant heart. Maybe there is, maybe there is. But I'll tell you this, even if it is, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can let God change. God said through some of the prophets they mistreated that God can take a heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. I believe that. I've seen that. I believe it can do it in every single one of us. Just listen to what he's telling us. What's he telling us? What have you been kind of bumping up against going, God, I don't think so. Found your spot. That's the spot where you need. Say, God, I really do need to lend happiness. Please mold me, shape me, and help me. You need prayers for that process because it's not an easy process sometimes. God has to work on us an awful lot sometimes. It's not always comfortable. If you need prayers for that, we'll pray with you. You would like to do that in private. You can meet some of our elders at the back of the auditorium. They'll pray with you in private. If you need to put Christ on in baptism today, we are always ready to do that because we want to see everybody come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, His grace, His mercy, His hope, and to grow in Jesus. We don't want to see anybody on the wrong side of this parable or any other.